you know, William James, great philosopher, said there were three things important in life. The first is to be kind, the second to be kind, and the third is to be kind. So to me, it's these human values, the humanism, which I think is as helpful as anything for a, uh, a society which doesn't always have the right values for it to go forward in a positive, meaningful way. Welcome to the Leadership Unboxed podcast, where we explore the stories of extraordinary people. Today, we're delighted to have Rabbi Leslie Gutterman, a nationally renowned and accomplished religious figure. He has been a trailblazer for interfaith relations and has been honored with numerous awards for his work in social justice. Let's get started on Leadership Unboxed with Rabbi Leslie Gutterman. Thanks for joining us today. So, Rabbi, can you tell us about your journey and what inspired you to pursue this profession? Well, I grew up in Flint, Michigan, which a lot of people know about because of the water crisis. But it was a very nice town growing up. It was known as Buick Town because the plants were there and everything in many ways revolved around General Motors. My father was a dentist. Much of his, many of his patients were white collar folks that were associated with, with General Motors. And, and it was a nice Jewish community, not a large one. I belong to a liberal synagogue, a reformed temple. My mother was um, brought up in Flint. My father from Detroit. They moved there. So I grew up in this town where it isn't like Cheers where everybody knew your name, but there was a certain intimacy. And the Reformed Temple may have been some 200 families. Flint, of course, as a sideline, changed drastically when plants left precipitously. So Flint became 23% unemployed. It was really a disaster, 42% lived on the poverty line, and Flint has never really come back. But my Jewish identity was forged in a really a much different kind of uh, Flint community. And the rabbi who officiated at my bar mitzvah, now I'm 13 years old, thought that it might be a nice profession for me. I don't know why he thought it. I don't know that I even know what it meant, but of course I felt flattered and felt close to him. I was involved in youth groups, and it was an era, I'm now 80, so we're talking in the, in the 60s, where there were a lot of young people who went into some of these professions inspired by their Jewish experiences in youth group. But the origins really... Uh, turned out not to be very predictive of what the experience of being a rabbi was or what it meant. I never really grappled with any kind of theological issues. I went to the University of Michigan. I majored in English and really was not particularly active at the Hillel, but I did always have a bug in my head, and I did enroll at Hebrew Union College, which was the main campus of the reform movement. So 
maybe I decided to be a rabbi before I decided to be a Jew in the sense that religiously and theologically issues there were came after the fact. Great. Thanks for sharing. And as you grew up, as you went through your career, who were some of your early mentors or role models, and how did they shape your approach to religion and the community? Well, the first one was probably the rabbi who thought I would be a good candidate for the rabbinate. Uh, and then for a short while when he left, there was a man by the name of Samuel Karf who became a very distinguished rabbi. He was very young in those days. I was a sophomore at Ann Arbor. It was a dark time as it was for many adolescents having crises of self-confidence. And uh, I was really ready to give up whatever dreams I had about the rabbinate. And he really emboldened me and inspired me. There was a professor at Hebrew Union College, who kind of took me in. He was born in Germany, and the family went to England, and they were part of a sort of kinder, what they called a kinder transport, who children that were kind of sent to this country for safety. But he was a mentor, and the man I came to be an assistant with, we're talking now 1970, um, he was very nurturing and helped me find my own voice. So it was, there were, these were three rabbis who meant a great deal. Sure. And can you, can you, just, can you elaborate a little bit more on what helped distinguish them as being role models and mentors? They came into my life. Um, you know, we're attracted often by circumstances to people older than we who are in a particular position of authority. The first one was my rabbi. The second one was my teacher. The third one was my boss, if you will. And each brought something different in terms of their own life experience. I think all three were scholarly. And for a long time, I felt that I was really not up to the task because it turned out my talents were pastoral, not scholarly. But each believed in me, helped me find my own voice. And I'm grateful to this day for their influence. That's great to hear. And can you discuss any, were there any key turning points or moments that distinctly stick out in your mind in terms of your growth and development? Yeah, I'm, when I was rejected by Brandeis University, <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still on their waiting list 60 some years later. I say that because I would have majored in Near Eastern studies. I was never great in languages. And I sensed that I would have really decided then to become a social worker or a psychologist. So I went to Ann Arbor, which was not a great feat because I was a state student. You had to keep a B average, but out-of-state students had a much harder time getting into the University of Michigan. And there I met my first wife. I, I should say that I buried two wives, my second wife a uh, year ago, May. It'll be two years. My first wife, I met in Ann Arbor. We dated. She got a master's in teaching after we graduated in 1964. 
at Northwestern. This is a long time ago. Her roommate taught Hillary Rodham as a senior in high school and convinced her to go to Wellesley. And then Julie and I got married after she got her degree. And she really helped form my career and my family life. She died of leukemia at the age of 56, almost some 20 years ago. And she was made all the difference in my life in terms of confidence and direction. And that's the story. Gotcha. So it sounds like there's a collection of people who've really entered your life and have made memorable impact. And well, it's true with all of them. I mean, if we're open to it, we can learn from everyone. I married the right woman. I married the right woman twice, really. I was twice blessed. Great. So in in all of that, how did how did you approach your role as a spiritual leader for your community? Oh, I guess I had tasks when I came here. I was really working for the senior rabbi. So I gave a sermon maybe once a month. I was involved with the youth group. I taught religious school. So they were tasks. I was given them. I did them. It was not particularly fueled by an attitude, but rather it was a job, and I did the job. In the course of it, of course, I formed relationships, some of which, of whom really have remained precious to this day. So I stayed in the same synagogue. I succeeded the man I came to be with after a fairly short time. And that, you know, created, you know, different responsibilities, but it was still really a job that I liked. And those relationships allowed me to discover just different dimensions of myself. And it was, I think, the secret to a very fulfilling and happy career. So I stayed, I had a first and last job. I came when I was 27, 28 to Providence, and I retired 45 years later. Yeah, I'd like to actually understand, in the course of your job and your profession, how did you, were there any, were there any key uh, learnings that you had in terms of nurturing, developing, and fostering those relationships with people? I'm not sure that I really know exactly what you mean. I think that what happens is that you mature and you I look to different kinds of people at different stages of life. I um, came as the years passed to understand that being scholarly was not as important as and being smart was not as important as being kind. I can't tell you any great turning point, but I think as we mature, we're open to different values, and that's what happened here. Um, you know, the people I might have admired and looked up to who were very successful were not always the same people that I came to admire in years past. So, you know, I've been friendly with the governor of the state at the time became president of the temple, federal judges. I've been 
blessed to really be close to a lot of people of authority and power. But as the years passed, I admired more the parents who took care of a disabled child quietly day by day, the wife or husband who took care of a loved one in a nursing home who were not the same people they married, but were loyal and caring and dedicated. And those kinds of, you know, those kinds of values became much more important to me as, as I got older. Was it a turning point in a relationship? Not sure. There were a lot of people who I really admired. There's a family that's having a bar mitzvah as we talk. I did the bat mitzvah of the mother and the grandmother and the grandfather were Holocaust survivors. The grandmother was part of that Dr. Mengele's experiments with twins. And she was taken out of the line to be gassed by a high school friend who she saved from being bullied. The uh, grandfather was in labor camps and they both met in a displaced person camp. And I remember now 40 years ago, their granddaughter's bat mitzvah, where the grandfather said, you know, I never understood why I suffered, but this morning was a kind of answer. Well, I had those kinds of experiences that um, couldn't help but shape me and make me understand the value of what I was doing. Well, thanks for sharing. I think it just goes to show that for as much as one can be focused in on success, I think at the core in terms of building building something that's going to impact others, impact the community, there's there needs to be a sense of humanity tied to all of it. I think so. Great. So can you discuss, is there anything in the Jewish community that's kind of currently pressing or a challenge and any perspective on that? Well, of course, in the headlines now are uh, the toll that's taken from white supremacism and anti-Semitism. And that's always been a challenge, particularly when societies undergo transition and economic disruption, which is what's happening now. So anti-Semitism tends to graft up, but it's a increasing problem. And it has been these last years because we haven't had the national leaders, particularly the president who stood up against it, which can be a model of not abiding and tolerant. So I think the Jewish community responds in many ways by coalitions, interfaith partnerships, standing up. I think free press and is particularly important in terms of feeling protected. Right. And any suggestions for just the public as a whole in discerning what is fact versus fiction? There's a lot of information out there nowadays. It's a problem. I think that that hatred has become amplified with social media, and that was never an issue growing up for me. 
So I think all of the conspiracies and misinformation is seen as a real problem. And there is certain pressures that are put now on these platforms, but um, there is a certain kind of powerlessness that individuals have, but there's a price to be paid. I think you have to stand up and say what is the truth, but there are there are vulnerable people who are very much prey to uh, untruths, conspiracy theories, misinformation. And the hard part is that some of these people have gotten into positions of authority. And that's true in the Congress, where there are election deniers, where there are people who have been known to associate with anti-Semites and broadcast and amplify their messages. It's a fraught time in this country right now. Agreed. Shifting gears just a bit into leadership, how would you balance tradition and progress in your leadership role? What is your suggestion to existing leaders right now to balance the values established versus the hunger for progress? Well, I don't have any advice. I think that the balance keeps changing. I think one has to be open to change. And I think as people look for a sense of community, tradition can be a ballast and can be a way that is a, can be a kind of moral compass, but the ways in which some of these values are expressed does keep changing with the generations. And I must say now in retirement after five or six years, maybe probably going on to seven years, I may not understand all the progress, but I think spiritual leaders of every denomination need to be good listeners and help to take the crucible of traditional values as they apply to new situations. Does your congregation work to promote interfaith understanding and collaboration? Well, you do it by relationships, I think. My successor found coalitions in an interfaith setting for same-sex marriages. She became a leader of that, but it's facilitating some of these movements with interfaith partners, and that's, that's very important not to feel alone. The other part I found with interfaith relationships are relationships. I became very close to the Episcopal rector next door at St. Martin's Church, which is literally next door to our synagogue. And I ended up doing the eulogy for his funeral. And so as a result of that relationship, we formed joint Bible studies. We created a forum where we invited civic leaders in the community to address ethical issues in that they were dealing with. The basis was a personal relationship. I, be, I, for some years, taught at Providence College and became very close to the president of Providence College, Father Peterson of Blessed Memory. And that helped me be open to Catholic family values and experiences that I never had. We traveled to Israel together. Um, 
I became friendly with the minister at Central Congregational Church. We're still close. We had lunch this past week. I ended up doing the eulogy for her late husband. So to me, it's, as it were, it's, it's, it's personal. Understood. Now, taking a step back and thinking about society a little bit more broadly, in this intensely competitive society, what skills or traits would you say are vital to thrive in this integrated and at times combative world? For whom? Are you talking about spiritual leaders? Are you talking about just all of us, anyone? You can take it either way. <laughs> there you go. Nice sidestep. I would say that being a good listener is important. Trying to understand other people's point of view. Sometimes I found it helpful when there were ethical dilemmas or difficulties to see if, if the opposing side could articulate the other person's point of view. And I think kindness. You know, William James, great philosopher, said there were three things important in life. The first is to be kind, the second to be kind, and the third is to be kind. So to me, it's these human values, the humanism that you referred to, which I think is as helpful as anything for a, uh, a society which doesn't always have the right values for it to go forward in a positive, meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those uh, conversations can be difficult when your beliefs are conflicted. Can you share a time when you've had to have or enter into or engage in those types of conversations? How did that go? Well, I think if you don't see it as a win-lose proposition, you're better off. If a person can go away feeling that they have been heard, that they are respected, that their point of view is understood, then it takes away some of the anger that might happen if they were dismissed or made fun of or not taken seriously. Understood. And uh, can you speak to your approach to helping people in general of any faith to live a prosperous life? What do you mean by a prosperous life? Both spiritually, materially. Well, materially, I have no idea. Uh, I have often said, not entirely in jest, that some of the most generous people I know don't have money. The impulse to give of oneself, that's a great gift. And people do find that they are, in quotes, the more prosperous by giving to others. One can model it. One can point to others who have done that. Uh, but in terms of thriving, I think being open to other people's point of view and relationships. Harvard University had the longest standing study on happiness that has now concluded. It was 85 years mm -hmm. of trying to trace what makes happiness or, and the answer Really, the key was interpersonal relationships. When one is isolated, it's a much more difficult enterprise to feel 
happy, as it were, or satisfied or fulfilled. So the more in which we can all be part of um, a sense of community and relating to others with common goals or sociability, I think the more we can go forward with a sense of satisfaction. Sure. Now that you brought up community, how do you strive to promote civility, understanding, kindness, and respect within the community? Well, these are values that spiritual leaders stand for, so you hope you can model them. It's hard to teach some of these things. Some of these values are caught rather than taught, which means that much of it isn't so much what a spiritual leader can do, but what a parent can do. That's why I think early childhood education and, and parents who learn to be able to be nurturing and, and finding ways to help their kids through the labyrinths of childhood and adolescence. It's that, I think that's really in many ways the, the key. Interesting. And do you feel that religion is one of those areas where children, adults alike can see, see how the values are lived versus teach by being taught? So it's you know, caught versus taught. Do you see that religion can play a role in promoting some of that? Learning? Well, sometimes there are people who are motivated by their religious beliefs to put their ideals into action. Those models of every faith can be inspiring and help us um, feel that we can make a difference in the world. I mean, I think that's part of the key of what religion can do to help us by our actions make our own corner of the world better because we lived in it. Got it. And how do you believe that religion can play a role in promoting civil discourse and healing divisions? Same thing. Uh, you know, it's people who do it rather than institutions. And we all know what re the religious values are that can help heal wounds and create partnerships. And there are people who are motivated by those values that inspire others. Thanks for that. And as we kind of round out and close out the conversation, for any aspiring leaders out there, spiritual, otherwise, looking to make a positive impact in their community, the workplace, in their own lives, do you have any words of wisdom, any advice based on your experiences? I know you mentioned kindness and just the importance of relationships. Is that what it comes yeah, down to? I, I think I, I think to to be gentle with oneself. Religious leaders sometimes have jobs that can never be completed, and where their the work is relentless. And I think it's important to be nurturing of oneself to make sure that you do have family time that you you know find firewalls against burning out. I think modesty is important that we can only do what we can do and move our, these lofty goals forward a little bit. Sometimes it's just keeping a small flame alight. So I think to be realistic about what one person can do and 
modesty and kindness to others and trying to do what we can to magnify our impulse for empathy. All of those human skills, I think, is what makes for professional success. Great. Thank you so much, Rabbi, for taking the time today. Really appreciate the conversation. Thanks. Your questions were insightful. I wish you the very best. And thank you for uh, inviting me. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Join us next time for more stories. Until then, I'm Vedith Huet. Keep striving for excellence.